Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. There are two men who are chiefly responsible from a human perspective for the fact that we are gathered here today in a gospel-preaching church to hear the word of God. And those two men are the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. You can take the book of Acts and practically divide it in two halves. The first half, pretty much about Peter. The second half, almost exclusively about the Apostle Paul. The interaction between these two men is one of the most interesting and significant aspects of the early church. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, we know. He was one of the key three, Peter, James, and John. Peter was the one that God gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven to in Matthew 16. So Peter, as God's appointed representative, opened the door of faith to the Jews in Acts 2, to the Samaritans in Acts 8, and to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Peter was incredibly significant in the Gospels. So Peter, though uh, some claim he is the first pope, there is no warrant in Scripture at all for believing that. The only thing Peter ever claimed for himself was that he was an apostle and an elder of the church. When you see Peter in the Gospels, he is the predominant disciple of the Twelve. When you move into the book of Acts, Peter is also, again, the predominant disciple. He preached that great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And it was through Peter's sermon that the Holy Spirit fell as predicted and the church age began. I remind you, the foundation of Christianity is historical, historical. These things occurred in history. Always keep in mind when you're reading history, and I particularly love to read history, that we are reading back into history. So the fact that uh, we're reading about things that already happened. These men, these women in the early, in the early church, they lived through this. And, and, and these Jewish believers and these Gentile believers didn't understand how this was all going to flesh out, and that's what we read about here in the book of Acts. Because the intersection of the lives of Peter and Paul centers on the meaning of the gospel, which really comes out clearly as we look at these two men. As Peter takes precedence, then Paul comes along, and then Paul takes the precedence. Now, we know when Peter and Paul first met. So we see their first meeting, and Paul records that in Galatians chapter 1. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh or blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, if you're not familiar with Scripture, we understand that, and we're glad you're here so we can learn Scripture together. Gentiles are basically non-Jewish people. 
They, they are not by national heritage related to Abraham. And so everybody else in Scripture, either Jews or Gentiles. Now, the word see here that Paul went to Jerusalem three years after his salvation, he went up to Jerusalem because whenever you go to Jerusalem, you always go up no matter what geographic location you're coming from. He went specifically to see Peter. The word see in Galatians means to interview. That must have been a fascinating meeting. I mean, the apostle Paul's first encounter with Jesus of Nazareth was as the risen Savior. He had a vision of Christ in his glory on the road to Damascus. Peter, he was the one who actually knew Jesus. I mean, he was one of the disciples, and for years he, he followed Jesus, and he heard him teach, and he saw his miracles, and, and he witnessed the resurrected Jesus in the flesh. can only imagine what kind, of, what kind of meeting that must have been for these two men of God. Now, we know that both Paul and Peter deeply loved the Lord Jesus Christ. But understand that Paul was not seeking some kind of official endorsement. He didn't go to Jerusalem to meet Peter to get, in essence, Peter's blessing. I believe he went because Peter knew Jesus better than he did, and he wanted to talk to Peter. And I'm sure one of the things they talked about was the gospel, you see, Paul didn't need Peter to explain the gospel to him because Paul got it directly from Christ. He tells us that in Galatians 1.11. But I made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Paul was struck on that road to Damascus and blinded, then he spent time in Arabia and, and, and then he went back to Tarsus. The, the, the Lord Jesus Christ must have revealed to Paul the essence of the gospel and, and that he was going to be that special apostle to the Gentiles. Now, think about these two men. They were vastly different in their experiences with Jesus. True, both were Jews. Peter was a common fisherman before the Lord called him to be a disciple. Paul was an educated man. He was educated by Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers in Jerusalem. He, he describes himself as a Jew among Jews, a Hebrew among the Hebrews, a Pharisee among the Pharisees. And so here was Paul, we saw last week, was a Roman citizen. And though both men were vastly different, they both were deeply devoted and deeply loved the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus delights in using us as who we are. And where we are. Yes, he will take us from where we are to where he wants us to be. But you don't have to be me and I don't have to be you. God wants to use us the way he designed us. All we have to do is make ourselves available to him. Now, they would have certainly realized they were preaching the same gospel. Now, you may say, what exactly is the gospel? You, you keep talking about the gospel. The word means good news or to proclaim good news. What is that good news? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a basic outline of the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, 
that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to Scripture. Pastor Brian read about that, died for our sins. And we sang about that this morning, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. That is the essence of the gospel, though it has far-reaching application and, and deeper meaning as you go through the epistles. Basically, it teaches us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the good news of the gospel. Now, we saw last week, we talked about Saul or Barnabas and Saul, who became the apostle Paul. I don't know that we mentioned this, but in Acts 11, Paul made a brief visit to Jerusalem with Barnabas. They were bringing relief from the church of Antioch up north from Jerusalem to the suffering saints in Jerusalem. And then around that time, the church and Peter began to experience persecution under Herod. And that's the time when Peter is put into prison. If you combine Herod and Peter, you get heater. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Paul and Barnabas then set out from Antioch in Acts 13 on the first missionary journey. Now, Antioch is north of Jerusalem. This becomes the first truly predominantly Gentile church uh, in, in, in the history of the, the early church. And so they are sent out from Antioch. They go on this missionary journey. They established churches primarily in the Roman province of Galatia, which is why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians about this whole issue about the gospel. They come back from that to Antioch. And in Acts 14, 27, it says, when they had come and gathered the church together, the church at Antioch, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. And there was great rejoicing over that. Now, one of the things you see in the book of Acts, and you learn by experience as a Christian, whenever the gospel goes out, Satan follows along. Whenever you are preaching the true gospel, whenever you're trying to reach people for Christ, I guarantee you Satan will show up in one form or another. So here we are in verse 1. We're still up in Antioch. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. Yes, they're going north, but again, you come from Jerusalem. You always go down because Jerusalem is on, on the mountains. It's a higher elevation. So these are Jewish legalists, and they're really upset by what they're hearing when Barnabas and Paul begin to share what was happening on their missionary journey. Gentiles were being saved. Gentiles were receiving the Holy Spirit. Gentiles are to be part of this new entity that God has called the church. And so they were very upset. And so, verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Well, what is this question or these questions? In essence, what they're discussing is, what is the nature of salvation? That's a really good question. How are people saved? Have you ever thought about that? You should. How can we as sinners be saved by a holy God and hope to dwell in eternity with him? Aren't men's works integral to our salvation? 
Isn't it a matter of us doing good so that we can help God to save us? These are the questions they were thinking about. And by the way, the same questions that many people think about today, and unfortunately many get the wrong answers. You see, the purity of the gospel was and is at stake. Yeah, it might not be Jews and Gentiles, but the nature of salvation is still debated today in many religious circles. See, the problem is when one mixes works with faith, it nullifies grace. The moment you mix works with faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The moment you mix in works with faith, you nullify grace. Grace means unmerited favor. Um, Many of you work and you get a paycheck. That's a wage that you earned. This holiday season, most likely, you will get a gift or you'll give a gift. You're not giving that because somebody earned that. That's just a, a gift of love. Salvation is a gift of God's love. We're saved by grace. It's the gift of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul was so adamant about the gospel. Romans 4.4, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you believe you can work your way to heaven, God is your debtor. Do you understand that? God owes you something. Christianity says just the opposite. It says we owe everything to Christ. We owe everything to God. He doesn't, go, he doesn't owe us anything because we are all sinners and rebels. Galatians 1.8, Paul said, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The Mormons say an angel Moroni came down and showed us another way plus the Bible. Paul said, even if an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel or any human being, let him be anathema, accursed. So this is what created what is called often the Jerusalem Council. You'll notice verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, now that's a church at Antioch, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, And this caused great joy to all the brethren. To come down from Antioch to go to Jerusalem, you're going to pass through these areas. And there were Christians there, primarily Gentile Christians, and they're they're rejoicing to know the gospel is coming to Gentiles. Sometimes in the Bible, it's good to understand what is not in the text as well as what is in the text. It's really interesting that Luke, the author of Acts, is very silent concerning Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem was. But he doesn't mention Judea because there would be many Jews who would not be happy about the conversion of Gentiles. Now, I believe that this particular visit by Paul is the one that he records in Galatians 2.1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. 14 years after Paul's first visit to Jerusalem, he goes back to defend the gospel. Paul was not going back to get some kind of apostolic, you know, authentication to his ministry. He's going back because he wants to make certain, he wants to see if this Jewish legalism mixing works with grace has infected the church at Jerusalem. 
So verse 4, when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. Paul wanted to be assured the apostles were still preaching the same gospel that he and Peter agreed they were both preaching. And so Paul goes to this council at Jerusalem. It appears there was a private meeting at first, uh, Galatians 2.2. I went up by revelation, communicated to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So Paul, probably Barnabas and Titus, meet with James, John, some of the elders of the church and the apostles in a private meeting which kind of is implied by Galatians, and then they met with with the whole church. Now, we said whenever the gospel goes out, Satan shows up. How does he show up? Well, most often, the emissaries of Satan can often be found among the true believers. The emissaries of Satan can often be found among the true believers. Lord willing, after Christmas, I plan to do a series on wolves in sheep's clothing. Because as your pastor and with retiring, there's some things I want to warn you about. Some very dangerous things that are creeping into the church now in this generation. So notice Galatians 2.4. This occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with us. And Paul describes these Jewish legalists as false brethren. Because how can you be saved if you think works helps you to be saved? This is about the essence of the gospel. You know, this isn't about differences in religion. You may have been raised a certain way in a certain religious tradition, but the point is, what do you believe makes a person saved? How does someone get saved? Because it's either works or it's grace. You cannot mix the two. The moment you mix faith and works, you nullify grace, and you have some kind of legalistic religion. It's not Christianity. There apparently was another group of Jews who were Pharisees, but they also were saved. But they were still confused. You see, when Satan can't keep someone from being saved, he will breed confusion, usually among newer believers. Verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So they felt that, well, okay, maybe we're saved by grace, but... We still have to keep the law of Moses, and they still have to be circumcised. They still have to come into the church through the Jewish door. That's what they were saying. But see, the content of the gospel is at stake. And the content of the gospel never changes. We preach from this pulpit the same gospel that the pastors who began Grace Gospel Church, that's what it was called, in that small group of believers and a Bible study and then met in the Lake Mont Fire Hall, we preach the same gospel they preached. I preach the same gospel that my great-great-grandfather preached from his German Bible before I was born. It's the same gospel. 
The content of the gospel, the true gospel, never changes. Verse 6, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to Acts chapter 10. When God has to give Paul, or Peter, excuse me, a special revelation just to get him to go to the home of a Gentile named Cornelius, who for a Jew to go into the home of a Gentile was something, you just didn't do that, you would become ceremonially defiled. But God gave Peter a special vision, and he proved to Peter that indeed the gospel was for the Gentiles. Peter was chosen by God to be the first to do that. Verse 8, so God who knows the heart... Acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Paul was then commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles, Romans 11.13. When he talks about the gospel for the Gentiles and the gospel for the circumcision, meaning the Jews, it's not two different gospels, it's two different audiences. You You need to understand that clearly. Because this was a critical issue that would influence the preaching of the gospel for generations. For generations. If they didn't get it right at the beginning, I don't play golf anymore, but when I used to play, it was such a frustrating game. And I would lose my sanctification every time I played. And if you just are a little bit off when you hit the ball, it goes this way, that way, anyway, but that way. It's the same way with the gospel. When it begins, it had to begin correctly and then carried from one generation to the next generation to the next generation all the way down to us sitting right here this morning. We can trace it back to the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the Council of Jerusalem. It was a critical issue. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, there's obvious natural differences between people. There are differences between men and women, boys and girls, no matter what the culture wants us to believe, what kind of fantasy they're coming up with. There are differences in nationalities, that's true. Our beautiful daughter-in-law is from, originally from Ethiopia. And, and now we have a grandson who, who, who is part Caucasian and, and part black. But the issue here is not that there aren't any nationality, national differences. He's talking spiritually. Spiritually, there are no racial distinctions. There are no gender distinctions. We are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, the influence of these false teachers was so strong that even Peter, though he didn't believe what they were saying, but he got caught up with them. And at some point, Peter's up at the church in Antioch, north of Jerusalem, and he's fellowshipping with Gentile Christians, and then some of these Jewish legalists show up, and then Peter separates himself, and even he gets Barnabas caught up in that. You can read that later on in Acts 15. And then Paul has to come along and rebuke Peter and straighten him out on that issue. You see, false doctrine spreads like a cancer. That's why we're always on about the gospel. That's why we're always explaining the gospel. That's why we're always preaching the gospel. That's why we're always teaching the gospel. We start it when they're very young and all the way through. This morning I went up and watched the uh, 
just popped in with the kiddos up there while they're watching you all worship down here. I don't know who thought of that idea, but it was a great idea because we want to teach our children the truths of the gospel. You see, adding or subtracting from the content of the gospel keeps people in bondage. Bondage. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. A yoke, like, like yoke of oxen, it's restricting, it's, it's binding. And if you take away from the gospel or you add to the gospel, you're going to put people in bondage. If you're going to teach that it's works or it's some... You go into some church building and some religious professional does something to you that's supposed to save your eternal soul before a holy God for eternity, or you think it's some kind of work that you do or have to continue to do, you're in bondage. Bondage. When have you done enough? How do you know you're saved? How do you know when you die you're going to go to heaven? If you believe in some kind of legalism, some kind of work salvation... You never know. And, and what if you think you're doing good and then you mess up a lot before you die? Or do you think that when you mess up, now you've got to do good to balance the scales? You do not understand salvation. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Our righteousness in God's eyes are like filthy rags. It isn't just the acts of sin we commit. Yes, it's the fact we're born in sin. We are totally depraved. We're sinners to the core. That's why no amount of good works or service or some religious professional doing something to you is going to solve your sin problem or my sin problem. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. So Peter, it's, it's very lo logical here. Why do we want to impose a burden on the Gentiles the Jews could not bear themselves? And so Paul addressed the Christians in Galatia who were being influenced by these Judaizers. And what Paul questions them about, I would question you if you believe salvation has some, works has something to do with it. Galatians 3.2, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And what about the fact that we continue to sin after we're saved? What do you do with that if you think it's, it's works? No, no. Salvation is a free gift, total full forgiveness. God wipes the slate clean, forgives you of all of your sin. Why does he do that? Because he loves you. It's his grace. It's his mercy. It's his kindness. But he won't force it on you. You have to accept him and repent of your sin. Verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent, listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. You see, God did that as he was, the gospel was going out. He confirmed it with these signs and wonders and miracles. But the bottom line is this, the salvation of Gentiles is an integral part of God's plan of redemption. We ought to be very thankful for that because most of us in here, probably 99.9% .9 of us are Gentiles. Verse 13, after they'd become silent, James, and we believe this is James, the Lord, Lord's brother, who was the chief pastor elder at the church in Jerusalem, 
James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. You know, the word church is ecclesia, called out assembly. Since Pentecost, God has been calling out of the nations and building a people for his name called the church. And we believe that when that church is completed, Christ will return, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. He will come in the clouds and what some refer to as the rapture, the catching away. And he will call his church home before the terrible events of the tribulation period. So at at issue again is the question, must Gentiles become Jewish proselytes to become Christians? No, they did not need to. And so what does James do? James quotes Scripture because Scripture must always be the final word in in any conflict, in, in, in any misunderstanding, particularly about the nature of salvation. So if you believe that some religious official can declare you righteous, can tell you your sins are forgiven... If you believe that they can do something special to you to take away your sin or make you ready for heaven, if you believe it's your own good works and your own works, I would challenge you to let Scripture be the final word on that. Not what some human says, not what some church doctrine says. What does the Bible say? Search the scriptures. You will not find that in this book. Oh, you will find a lot of churches where people will teach you that and preach that. But you know, all you have to do is read your Bible. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you the truth. Dangerous prayer to pray. No matter what family background you have, no matter what family history in a certain denomination or in a certain religion... What does the Bible teach? So James quotes from Amos 9, 11 through 12. Basically, he's showing that the salvation of the Gentiles was not contrary to God's plan for Israel. Verse 16. After this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Why do we celebrate the birth of an obscure Jewish rabbi in the nation of Israel? What's all these prophecies surrounding the Christmas story? What's all this about Jesus being the son of David? Because God promised David an eternal kingdom in Israel. Some don't believe that God has a plan for national Israel. I don't believe that. I believe he does. And I believe that one day God's going to restore Israel in the kingdom. And when he does restore the kingdom to Israel, it will become a source of blessing to all the nations. You know, many of the prophets wrote prophecy about the fact That when the kingdom comes, Gentiles will share in it as Gentiles. Not just as citizens of the kingdom, but as Gentiles. 
Malachi 1.11, for from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. James concluded that if God's plan for the future is to have Gentiles with the God's people, then it should be so now as well. Interesting, this is the last time you see Peter's name in the book of Acts. From then on is the Apostle Paul. All about Paul. So you have Peter at the beginning of Acts, you have Paul and Peter together, and then you have the Apostle Paul. Not that Peter didn't do anything else for the Lord. He was ministering primarily to Jews. Paul was ministering primarily to Gentiles. Peter wrote those two epistles. We know that Peter uh, wrote that epistle saying he knew that he had to put it off his tent, meaning that he was going to die very soon when he wrote those epistles. The Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul gave their lives for their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you get to heaven, look these guys up. Tell them thank you. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you literally for going against all the things that were against them, which they literally gave their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Savior. And as far as humanly speaking, though God gets all the glory, and we understand that, but God uses people, and humanly speaking, it's the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul who are chiefly responsible for you and I being in this building today with our Bibles, hearing again the timeless message of the gospel of the grace of God in